Well, this morning, we are going to be in Psalm 11. So if you want to turn there, go for it. If you're new to the Bible, open up to the middle, go a little bit to the left, and you will find yourself in Psalms. Psalm 11, if you have one of our pew Bibles, uh, can be found on page 452, if you grabbed one of those black Bibles on the way in. The big picture of Psalm 11 is that when crisis is all around us, when uncertainty feels like it's all we see, and even when the foundations of our society and our lives feel like they're giving way, the follower of God, the Christian, is to have faith. That we're to trust, we're to depend on the judgment of a sovereign God who offers us hope. I want to remind you that as we are about to read Psalm 11 right now, it's the only perfect part of our service. A reading of God's inerrant and infallible and inspired word. Because man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's read together now. Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 11 contains faith's response to fear. And in Psalm 11, we see David see, uh, getting counsel from his enemies as, uh, sorry, from his friends as he faces enemies, as he faces wicked people who try to take his life. But in the midst of all this, he asserts that his refuge is the Lord. He has placed his trust in God Almighty. And Psalm 11 like so many of the psalms we've gone through this summer, is important for us to hear this morning because it poses a question, a question that every single generation of Christians and believers has to answer, has to deal with, has to ask. It's found in verse three. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is a question that a prominent Christian scholar in 1939 described as the burning question of his day. James Montgomery Boyce said it's a classic question. If it was important for them then, 80 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, how much more important for us now today? Because I don't think I have to say much or explain much to you for you to realize why this question might be on your mind. If you've been paying attention the last two weeks in Psalm 9 and 10, one thing has been very clear. Wickedness 
abounds. Injustice abounds. Sin is prevalent in our world. There's lots of unrest. And it would seem often, wouldn't it, that any moral or righteous foundation we have in society is being torn down brick by brick. So we ask ourselves, when the foundations crumble, what can the righteous do? What shall we do when laws aren't upheld, when morality is undermined and sin seems to sweep around unchecked? What are we to do when casinos are prized over churches, when a novel virus inhibits so much of our lives? What can the righteous do when scripture is undermined and even those who describe themselves as churchmen are subscribing uh, to the upswing of just worldly and secular ideologies all around us? What are we to do when so much around us often in our lives seems to be crumbling? What can the righteous do? David, at the beginning of the psalm, gets counsel from his friends, his advisors, and they would have him flee. But David rejects that advice, and he turns to the Lord in faith. So this morning, as we walk through Psalm 11, we're going to look at it and ask ourselves three questions. First, what shall we do? Second, where should we look? And third, what is our hope? So let's turn now to verses one to three and ask ourselves the question, what shall we do in the face of uncertainty and struggle and crisis? Right out of the gate, Verse one, before we even get to verse three, in this pertinent question, David gives us the answer. In the Lord, I take refuge. David says this in a tumultuous time. You can look down to verse two. The wicked, they bend the bow. Their arrow is fitted. Like assassins, the bullets in the chamber, and these individuals are hiding, lurking in the dark, ready to devour David. We need to remember that David is... God's anointed king over Israel, his appointed leader. So for David's life to be sought is a serious thing. This is why his friends say, what if the foundations crumble? All of life that they knew in society, for whatever adversity David's experiencing, we don't know the direct um, moment or instance in his life, but for whatever he's experiencing and going through, whatever this points to, It was serious. The foundations of Israel's society, the laws that God gave them, seem like they're going to turn upside down. What can the righteous do? David's friends ask him in doubt, in fear. It's a rhetorical question with the expected answer of, get out of Dodge, David. Run, hightail it out of here. You don't want to be here when this happens. I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we look to David's friends, his confidants, those who are giving him this fearful advice, we're tempted to think the same way. We're tempted to flee. We are tempted to run away. Perhaps The foundation that David saw crumbling or his friends saw crumbling, though, 
is not the foundation in your life that's crumbling. Perhaps your marriage feels like it's falling apart. Perhaps your finances are in shambles. Perhaps your job security is threatened. Maybe all the relationships in your life seem to be turning to rubble. We face so much adversity, so much hardship because of sin in our lives. And these circumstances give us great temptation to flee. But this is not the response of faith. The response of fear is to flee, but the response of faith is to say, I will take refuge in the Lord. That is what the righteous can do, to cling to God, to confide in God, to see him as our only hope in salvation. We need to put our confident trust in his protection. And that sounds nice, doesn't it? It it sounds easy to say. We read it. In the Lord I take refuge. But so often we flee, we turn our backs on hardship, and rather than taking refuge in God, we take refuge in the things we can see. David's friends say, flee like a bird to your mountain. David sitting in Jerusalem, he would have seen the mountainside, the hillside all around him, and he's been there before for safety when fleeing from Saul. He knows it offers protection, but he knows that it's only temporal protection. And we are tempted to look at what we can see right in front of us and cling to it for protection rather than making God who is unseen, unchanging, and who rules over all things our hope, our refuge, our security. And so you might be tempted to flee to many things. You might be tempted to flee in, in our current situation, cling to whatever you think the American dream and American values embody. And you uphold those as your God. You might be tempted to cling to your finances and look at every single penny and control it and idolize it, acting as if the fate of the world and eternity depends on how it's spent. You might idolize your work and absorb yourself in it ignoring all else that God has put in your life to do. And I think most often we're tempted to run towards distractions. We're tempted to turn towards that which is easy, towards the news, towards any form of media. Sometimes we even turn to our own kids or small details in our lives just to escape the reality of what might be going on around us. We distract ourselves. We desire immediate safety and satisfaction, don't we? We look to anything we can grab hold of. Augustine was confronted by a man who put an idol before him and said, here is my God, where is yours? Again, he pointed and looked around at the sky and said, here is my God, but where is yours? Augustine didn't even reply and later on said, I did not show him my God, not because I don't have one to show him, but because he did not have eyes to see him. And so often we're like that man with the little idol who holds it in our hands and says, this is what I treasure. This is what I trust in because I can touch it. I can feel it. I can hug it. I can caress it. 
faith rather than fleeing to simply what our eyes see in front of us turns to God. So when presented with the question, what shall we do? And the opportunity to flee arises. Like David, we say, how can you say to my soul? That question is preposterous. I won't flee. It's incompatible with my faith. So in struggle and in hardship, we must respond in faith and take refuge in and trust the Lord because he cares for us. So we move on now and we look to our second question. Our second question is where should we look? Where should we look? And in verses four to six, we see our answer. And what David does in verses four to six is he describes what he's trusting in. He describes the character of God that he knows and that is, in fact, his refuge. What about God gives us strength when wickedness and crisis are present? David looks to the Lord's judgment and God's sovereignty as his reason for refuge. He says in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And again, rather than looking to that which is right before him, David looks to the one who rules over the universe. He looks to the one who controls all things. Heaven is the Lord's dwelling place, and it's described as a holy temple, uh, pointing to the mystery, to the power, to to the otherness, to the absolute goodness and, and perfect purity and morality of God. And it's from heaven that this righteous God has an unshakable reign. Sitting an infinite distance beyond the earth, no human ruler, no human institution or situation could shake the reign of God or tamper with it. God sits enthroned above all that takes place and disheartens those of little faith. And it is the faithful who fix their eyes on this sovereign king to sustain them. From heaven, the Lord is described as seeing and as testing all mankind. The Lord, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Did you know that God is not blind to your current situation? If you're facing crisis, if you're facing hardship, God sees it. He sees all things, and, and he's described here as almost scrutinizing all things. Uh, the affairs of mankind are, are under his control, and it's like he's squinting at them so precisely, understanding them, knowing all. It says that he tests. It's like God has this divine investigation going on over all human affairs. Because God's knowledge is an evaluating knowledge. He knows the wickedness that is present. He understands any trouble that you might feel. And he evaluates all things. He tests it, both the righteous and the wicked. So when we look to this God, this king who is sovereign, who knows all things and sees all things, We must trust him. 
So we have to ask ourselves, where have we placed our faith? Where have you placed your faith? Are you relying on this God, this sovereign king? Verses five and six, what we see is comforting. But it's also terrifying because what comes next is the drawn out implication of God's searching gaze, of his penetrating knowledge and judgment. And it's terrifying because here we see the Lord's judgment. He's described as testing the righteous, hating the wicked and the one who loves violence. With the righteous, the Lord examines them. And he may well have been testing David's faith. He may well be testing your faith because we know that the Lord seeks to purify, to sanctify his children. We know that he wants to see their faith strengthened, even amidst adversity. He does this all in his kind and fatherly care. William Cooper, who was an 18th century hymn writer and poet, knew the testing of the Lord well, knew affliction well, and he wrote this. "'Tis my happiness below not to live without the cross, but the Savior's power to know, sanctifying every loss. Trials make the promise sweet. Trials give new life to prayer. Trials bring me to his feet. Lay me low and keep me there. When Spurgeon examined these stanzas, he said, is not this a very cogent reason why we should not distrustfully endeavor to shun a trial? For in doing so, we are seeking to avoid a blessing. The testing that strengthens our faith is in great contrast to that of the wicked though, because God is described as hating the wicked. With wickedness, with wicked men, with sinners, there's no testing or proving because the act of testing applies when the Lord wants to develop strong faith and strengthen his children. But for the wicked, there's only repudiation, there's only judgment. The Lord will not tolerate that wickedness, which is described as violence, which destroys people. His soul hates it. God rejects such things. They're detestable to him. And it's because of this hatred and because of God's holiness and righteousness that he will punish evildoers. We see in verse 6 how this plays out, how this divine displeasure of God is enacted on feeble men. Raining coals, fire and sulfur, scorching wind. If you're without shade today, you're feeling it. (laughs) It's hot. But any heat you might feel this past weekend in 100-degree weather is nothing compared to the heat of God's wrath for sin. The portion of the cup of the wicked is what one commentator described as wrath wind. Because the lot of the wicked is fire and brimstone, divine retribution for their horrid acts. And it's this that David is describing his response to his friends that pictures the great judgment probably that will occur at the end of the age when Christ does return. No matter who you are, no matter why you're here today, 
this picture of God's wrath, whether you are in Christ or out of Christ, ought to give you pause. It should stop you in your tracks. The wrath of God is no small thing. For the unbeliever, this is a terrifying picture. If you have not been saved by Christ, even if your life is in shambles and crisis abounds, it's nothing compared to the crisis you will face when you're seated before God's judgment throne, when you stand there in eternity. But there is hope because for those in Christ, this is a reminder that Jesus Christ, God himself, has borne our sins, has satisfied this great wrath of God for sin. Because of this, anyone who trusts in Christ for salvation, who repents of their sins and turns to the Lord in trust, is saved from such wrath. Instead of being then objects of God's punishment, we're objects of God's pleasure. Because now, because Christ has taken our guilt upon himself, because we've trusted him, his righteousness is given to us. His goodness is credited towards our account. This is the great news of the gospel, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ will save any sinner who turns to him. That wrath doesn't have to be faced by us if we put our faith in Christ. And it's all so that we might walk in righteousness and we might honor him. So if you've yet to trust in Christ today, do so now. He extends his hand to you and he offers you a burden that is light. He offers you his kindness. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden with your burden of sin, with any crisis that might be abounding in your life, turn to Christ, trust him for salvation. He will take it upon himself. He bears the punishment for your sin. Trust in him. You'll be given life abundant. You'll be given joy. You will know God himself and be given great hope. And it's this hope that we think of that even though we can look at God's extreme just judgment, it's this hope in Christ that allows us to ask the question, what is our hope? What is our ultimate hope? Let's look to verse seven and see that the hope of the believer is in a God who is righteous and a God who loves righteousness. This is the other side of God's judgment. Because the Lord is righteous, wickedness cannot stand, but because he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. But if we're in Christ, as I stated, we are now the objects of God's pleasure. He loves righteous deeds. Why? Because we've been made perfectly spotless and righteous before him. All because of Christ's righteousness given to us. It covers us. And the end result of this, the end result of our salvation, is that we will behold the face of God. The upright shall behold his face, David says in verse 7. This is our ultimate hope. And it points to two things. First, uh, perhaps actually David's thinking of something more temporal, uh, that we'll see God's favor in defending and delivering us, even maybe if it's not always how we imagine it will play out. Even if it's delayed until Christ returns, we know that God will deliver us. 
But second, it points to something eternal. Because the hope of believers in every age is that we will see God face to face. That we will one day dwell with God for all of eternity. Heaven or escaping judgment is not the end of our salvation. The prize of the gospel is God himself. Knowing him, cherishing him, loving him, calling him our father. Our ultimate joy and hope will be to worship God perfectly, without sin, for all of eternity. We'll bask in his glory. We'll behold his very face. So again, we ask ourselves, will you trust in this God? Will you trust him? Will you respond in faith when your whole world seems to crumble? Will you trust him? And we ask ourselves, is he your hope and struggle? Even in good times, is the Lord what you cling to? Because life is full of struggle. Uh, There are a myriad of situations that cause us to ask that classic question, that perennial question. If the foundations crumble, what can the righteous do? We've not been left to ourselves to try to contrive some answer. The Lord has given us a good answer in Scripture, and he's modeled it in David's life. So when crisis abounds, when the world feels like it's turning upside down on its head, when everything seems to be wrong, when evil lurks nearby, we don't respond in fearful flight. We don't just get out of Dodge. We don't just run the other direction. Because we know that it's incompatible with our faith. And that it belies a heart tied to that which is temporal. So rather we flee. We respond in faith. We trust the Lord and let him be our refuge. We look to his character. As a God who not only sees all things, but who makes all things right. We trust him because He is just. We trust him because he is good and we trust him knowing that our greatest reward, our ultimate hope is an eternity of beholding his glory, of seeing him face to face. This is what awaits us on eternity's doorstep. This is our ultimate hope in all of life. Let's pray together now. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the Psalms which have taught us this summer to trust you, to turn to you, to see your good character and rejoice in it and worship you in all of life. We pray that you would help Psalm 11 take root in our hearts. Lord, that you would dismantle any idols in our lives, anything we cling to, whether seen or unseen so that we wouldn't turn to those things, that we wouldn't turn to that which doesn't last and that offers no true protection. Rather, Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you, in your good character, 
and your loving care and your faithfulness. Lord, help us to make you our refuge. Give us strength by your spirit to do so. We pray, Lord, that as we go throughout life, our eyes would be fixed on heaven, on eternity. That our ultimate joy would be to think of how you have saved us and how someday we will get to worship and honor you perfectly forever. So Lord, we pray, come Lord Jesus. We await that day when we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.